Hi, I'm Shelly. And I'm Nicole. And you're listening to the Baby Pro Podcast, where we talk about everything and anything related to pregnancy through the first year of your child's life. Every episode, we will discuss and interview experts on all the questions expectant and new parents want to know, such as creating the perfect birth plan, infant sleep, and tips and tricks for parenting a newborn. Welcome to the show. Hey, Nicole. Hey there, Shelly. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I am so glad that the warmer weather is here. Oh, me too. And the weather is just crazy. Like it can't make up its mind. Right. Did I tell you, um, it's Hunter's birthday, by the way, today. Oh, oh happy birthday, Hunter. I know. I'm really struggling with it because he's turning 12. Oh, and I'm like, my I know. Word. I'm like, because he's my sweetest kid. So I'm like, oh, now puberty is going to hit him and he's going to turn into a, a jerk like all teenagers <laughs> turn into jerks. And I don't want like because, you know, when it's your youngest and you're like, yes, you're so sweet to me still when the other older kids are jerks. And <laughs> yes, they still love me. I get I'm it. Struggling with it. Like this morning, we always do the, you know, we always do birthday punches. It's like yeah. a stupid tradition. So I went to go give him his 12 punches and one to grow on. And I'm like, this is too many. Like, it's right. so much better when it's like eight punches. And one right. Or three. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh. And he's been, he's in baseball and the difference in skill between last year and I don't know like he went up to the next league and it's amazing how much better skilled they are at this age right your kids played baseball right yes my boys did and I loved it Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna lie it takes up a lot of time like the games are you know two hours and then there's practices and but when you once you get there like I'm always stressed trying to get him there on time and everything but once I get there and I settle into my I bring my lawn chair and it's just something about like listening to the crowd and yes. you know there's they're always serving like burgers and hot dogs and the sun is out and I love it I know and then oh, he I plays a it. lot of like night games where the game starts at 7 30 so then they turn on the big lights and, yes and it's no, big so. too and sunflower yeah. seeds mm-hmm. and I love it Yep. I miss those days. Yeah. I know I'm going, I, as stressed as I get about it, I know I'm going to miss it when like, cause he's the last kid. He's the last kid. So I'm like, Oh, I should really just treasure this more, but (laughs) so special. Mm -hmm. So we are going to be doing something different on this podcast. Um, Instead of doing favorite of the week, we are just going to be talking about relevant news or happenings in the world that revolve around pregnancy and parenting. Yeah. Um, And this week we are going to talk about some exciting news. There's been a huge breakthrough in SIDS research. Have you heard about this? Yes. I just saw it. Yep. So basically, you know, SIDS is um, when a baby passes and we don't know why. Right. So they've been studying SIDS for a long time and they have suspected for years that it's something that has to do with the part of the brain that controls arousal. Like something is happening in that part of the baby's brain where they're unable to wake themselves up from a deep sleep when they have like an episode where they stop breathing or something like that. And that's always been like the leading theory. And the newest research shows that babies who have passed from SIDS have a lower level of a certain enzyme in their brain than other babies. And this enzyme happens to create like a really important pathway in the arousal part of the brain. So for whatever reason, these babies don't have enough of this enzyme And they're thinking that that's what's leading to SIDS. It was like a very small sample size. So definitely more research is needed. And this this is just opening up the doors for better research, more pinpointed research. Because if we know exactly what to look for, like this is just one biomarker that can show if an infant is at risk for SIDS or not. But we can develop tests 
to test and see what level of enzyme a baby has. And if they are a little low in that enzyme, like maybe there's something we can do, or maybe there's something that we can keep an eye on. And then if you're, if we know exactly, if it leads to us finding the exact cause of SIDS, then maybe we can get back into more biological sleep with infants and not scare parents all the time about like your baby has to sleep on their back all the time and never bed share and all that stuff. It's pretty exciting. When my mother was a young girl, she lost a baby brother to SIDS. So I sent her the article because that was always a big thing in their family. Like, why did this happen? You know? Right. Because I I mean, parents just blame themselves when things like that happen because you're told, you know, even if you follow all the safe sleep guidelines that you're given in the hospital and you're taught, SIDS can just happen anyway. And a lot of parents will blame themselves like, oh, I did something wrong or maybe it was something I ate or maybe. And now it's like it can offer like reassurance that it wasn't your fault, that it wasn't something that you did wrong. Right. That aspect of it too. So I'm excited to see what new research is going to come out from this and what we can learn about SIDS. That's right. Yeah. All right. So let's go to our question of the week. Okay. So this week's question is my six month old baby is on a nursing strike. Do you have any suggestions for giving them to breastfeeding? <laughs> oh man, those nursing strikes. Ah! <laughs> it's so hard. Babies and toddlers have such a mind of their own. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to get them to do anything they don't want to do. Right. <laughs> and, and nursing strikes are very common from, well, I wouldn't say they're very common, but I would say it's more common for them to occur between four and six months. Yeah. Of age because they just are going through these huge um, yeah. leaps and developmental leaps and growth spurts. And they're just so busy and they want to look around and they want to crawl and they want to play with their toys. And it's just so hard for them to like focus. And sometimes these leaps and can cause shifts in their body where maybe for some reason they're not as comfortable and they just can go on a nursing strike. Right. It's really hard. And one common thing with that I've seen with the nursing strike is a lot of parents will say, well, if the baby is sleeping or sleepy, like in the middle of the night, they mm-hmm. will feed fine. They will nurse yeah. just fine. But during yeah. the day, they just absolutely refuse to nurse. Yep. Yep. I've heard that too. Do you have any suggestions? I think that moms need to take measures to keep themselves comfortable if they feel like they're getting full, but I don't feel like there's much you can do with the baby other than those kinds of things. When the baby's sleepy, mm-hmm. just keep offering, spend time doing skin to skin, Right. but typically they'll come back to it. Yep. Typically nursing strikes are short lived. Right. Typically being the key word there. Right. Exactly. I don't know, Nicole, these pandemic babies, like- I- I'm seeing so many more nursing strikes than I used to see. Ah, Everybody's going on strike. The babies Mm -hmm. too. Yep. Yep. Another thing that you can try is to take a bath with baby. Yes. That's can like replicate the in utero environment and kick in their feeding reflexes. Just if you're, you can try to latch your baby while you're in the bath. This worked really well for a family of mine that I was working with that the baby started to refuse the breast. And I suggested she take a bath and the baby latched in the bath and never looked back. Right. If you do take a bath with your baby, just make sure someone else is at home too. Yeah. To help you transfer the baby in and out of the bathtub safely because babies are slippery when wet. <laughs> That's right. I know. Um, so that was our question of the week. If you would have a question that you'd like us to answer, you can submit it to me on Instagram um, at Shelly Taft IBCLC. And up next, we have our guest, Dr. Martin Rosen. He is a chiropractor who is going to be talking to us about tongue tie, TMJ, and babies and cranial distortions, mean like head molding, like torticollis, things like that, flat spots, and how they impact breastfeeding. Excellent. That should be very interesting. This week, we are speaking with Dr. Martin Rosen. Dr. Rosen is a 1981 summa cum laude graduate of Life Chiropractic College. Since 1982, he has maintained a private practice in Wellesley, Massachusetts. Besides his practice, he has traveled nationally and internationally teaching chiropractic technique, pediatrics, cranial adjusting, chiropractic philosophy, and practice management. With his wife, Dr. Nancy Watson, they also run the Peak Potential Institute, offering premier educational programs for healthcare professionals. Their most recent book, It's All in the Head, was written to inform and bring awareness to the implications of growth and development challenges in the early stages of childhood development. 
Their book empowers parents with the ability to understand normal developmental milestones and to recognize problems in the earliest stages, allowing them to seek appropriate care before problems become entrenched and create diagnosable disease processes. Peak Potential Institute also offers other educational tools, including hands-on and online workshops and seminars, guest lectures, instructional videos, written books and articles, published research papers, and one-to-one interviews. He is dedicated to giving chiropractors, healthcare providers, and parents a new perspective when it comes to children's health. As parents of two daughters, Dr. Rosen and Watson have been committed to helping other parents learn from their personal and professional experiences. Through their combined 80 years of teaching, writing, and clinical experience, they have brought a unique insight, motivation, and support to thousands of lay and professional individuals in numerous fields. Welcome, Dr. Rosen. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Shelley, for having me. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to what I have to say. Can you describe in sort of like layman's terms what it is you do? So I'm a chiropractor. Um, and most people think of chiropractors as, you know, back, neck, pain type of doctors. But we actually specialize in pediatrics. And what our goal is, is actually to prevent things from happening. So as we know with children, there's a lot of traumatic episodes in their lives, sometimes including the birth process. And that can cause stress to their spine, their cranium, and their nervous system. And our job is to find those stressors and remove them either when they're causing issues or before they cause issues so that we can help facilitate optimum function in the health of the child. Can you go into a little bit more detail of what you mean by trauma from the birth? Okay. Well, I mean, the easy way to think of it is C-sections, vacuum deliveries, forceps deliveries. Those are all kind of traumatic experiences. But part of the process of the birth is going down the birth canal. And the reason that that happens is it creates molding in the cranium. It primes, uh, kind of primes the baby's respiratory mechanism and, and breathing mechanisms. And so that transition down the birth canal can also be traumatic depending on how rough it is, how long it is, how intense it is. So any type of stresses can cause trauma that the body can't adapt to. Um, one of the main things that causes damage, I guess, to the child's nervous system is actually traction. So when people think of chiropractors, they think of nerves being pressed on and compressed, and that doesn't usually happen to a child, but stretching does happen. If you've ever seen a birth, you know, a child, depending on the birth, sometimes they're really easy, sometimes they're more difficult, sometimes more force is needed to bring the baby down the birth canal. And it's no different when someone brings their child to the pediatrician in the first couple of days to get, you know, things checked, their weight, their height, breathing, all that. Well, we check their spine and their cranium. We basically check that there's no stress that's occurred to the nervous system. So another way to kind of quantify it is we talk about ABCAR scores. So one of the reasons people take ABCAR scores is to see how the birth affected the child. You know, how was the child breathing? What was the child's color? What was their respiratory rate? So if the ABCAR scores are really low, that gives us a sense that the birth was a traumatic incident for the child. But if the ABCAR scores are higher in the normal range, it's less traumatic. So we're always monitoring how the birth affected the child, obviously, as well as how it affected the mother. And again, as our job as chiropractors is to determine how that birth affected the structures that protect the central nervous system. Mm -hmm. And as a doula and as a lactation consultant, I see a lot of babies where the birth may not have had a lot of trauma, but even if you have a birth that doesn't have a lot of trauma, it's, I still wouldn't say it's gentle. It's not a gentle process on the parent or the baby. Like even if everything goes, as expected still like a lot of twisting and turning. Exactly. And you know, you see that as lactation consultant. So you see, you see that too. You see some babies that come out that are very relaxed and nurse easy. They they kind of come into a lot easier than those other babies that the birth looks like, but they're very tense and very tight. They have trouble connecting, you know, so the trauma, for lack of a better term, um, can be happening in utero during the whole process. And then when the baby comes out, you know, babies start to feel pain and pleasure by the third trimester. They already can di- differentiate between that water and utero and what's happening outside of the womb is also affecting their growth and development. So yeah, it, or position in the womb. It may be an easy birth, but maybe the baby was held up against the pubic bone for a long time. Maybe the cord was tight, too tight. You know, I'm, we just had a, a mom who delivered a baby that the cord was actually wrapped twice around the baby's neck when the baby came out. Now the baby came out, you know, she went to term. There was no problems during pregnancy. They had no idea when the baby came out, the baby was kind of blue because the cord was wrapped around the neck. And, you know, they, they took the cord off the neck and the baby is air quotes fine. But yeah, there was a traumatic birth of the baby, even though everything on paper, except for that cord looked good. Mm-hmm. You know, so you're right. Everybody has a different experience when it comes to the birth. 
and I've never, obviously never given birth, but I've seen a number of them, not as many, obviously, as you. But, yeah, they don't look like, oh, that was an easy thing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that went well, you know. I mean, it always looks like it's a difficult process. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I wonder if it wasn't for their natural reflexes, they would just be kind of shell-shocked after such a huge, like, transition. Oh, you're talking about the babies? The yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's the whole thing of primal reflexes. They're survival mechanisms, right? If mm-hmm. they were, yeah, right. If they weren't there, they'd be like, I mean, can you imagine that being in a womb, safe, protected, fed, you know, warm, taken mm-hmm. care of for nine months, and then boom, you thrust into the world, and depending on where, you know, it could be a home, it could be a hospital. There could be people standing around. Yeah, I can't mm-hmm. imagine what that imprinting does to your nervous system because your nervous system is so susceptible in those first two years of life. I mean, it's growing faster than it'll ever grow again in your life. So it's taking, it's basically just taking input, taking in input. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's an amazing, it's amazing imprinting process. Right. One of the things that I see families struggle with is this isn't something that pediatricians or other providers are often trained right. to pick up on. And so they may think that everything's fine. Like, if I'm helping a baby with breastfeeding, one I usually ask about the birth, but one of the questions is, well, how long did it take you to push them the baby out if it's vaginally? Right. And I can I almost completely correct with my guesses because the babies who just come flying out where the moms are like, oh, like one push and he came, they're always with like this, but their shoulders up by their ears and they yeah, have a yeah. flex posture that they yeah. can't extend their neck. And and it's just, you don't, unless someone is connecting those dots for the families, it's not something that they pick up on. Well, I mean, think of the word. The word is called transition, right? So it's a transition period from the uterus into the birth canal is the transition phase of labor, right? Mm-hmm. So when you think of transitions in your life, just take your life, you know, you trans, you, people move, um, kids go to different schools. There are all these transitions in your life. And depending on how traumatic that transition is or how you process it. So you're right. Part of the thing they did a study on, I think it was 2015 in, in England about they, they trapped about a hundred different births and they evaluated the kids after about six to 72 hours, regardless of the type of birth. And what they found is that the transition period had a greater effect on how well that child was functioning within six to 24, 72 hours. Sometimes it's too slow mm-hmm. and they're trapped in there too long. And they're just like you said, sometimes you do know, these babies shoot out. Imagine that that's a transition. You know, it's kind of thing if you put your house on the market thinking, oh, I have a couple of months to get it together. Someone comes along and buys your house, you know, and says, I want you out in a week. Can imagine how much stress that is. And it's like, so the baby's having the same process of going from the womb to the real world in maybe 20 minutes instead of an hour and 15 minutes or whatever, you know, time frames. And so you're right. And those babies, they definitely come out what we call guarded. They're in this tense state. They're guarded because they just literally came out so fast and so intense. I want to show you something I brought here. So this is a baby's head. This mm-hmm. is a 33 week old. Um, obviously they don't come in different colors, but they have these sutures, these, all these soft spots that you feel in your baby's head. The whole idea of this cranium as a pad to an old adult's head is that this cranium can compress on itself. So it does two things during the birth canal. As it comes down, it compresses. And then within the next seven to 10 days, it should decompress and be normalized. So one of the things as chiropractors that we're trained to do is to check that to make sure that when the compression occurs and when the decompression occurs, that it normalizes. So a lot of times you'll see babies come out, you know, it's very common. You'll see things like um, flathead syndromes or flagellocephaly, and they often don't develop till around three or four months. Or aren't, I shouldn't say develop, aren't diagnosed at three or four months. We're trained to actually see the underlying issue that may be causing that to occur before you actually see the symptoms of it. Mm-hmm. And the other thing you talked about, you know, as a lactation consultant, you see these babies who are real tense. One of the things that you can tell if there was trauma to the neck when the babies come out is, let's say the baby likes to nurse more on one breast than the other. And you keep you can't figure out why. The reason may simply be that the baby's neck has been slightly injured and it's easier for them to turn one way or the other. But they're not telling you that. You know, mm-hmm. when you're an adult, you say, you know, it hurts when I turn to the right. I can easily turn to the left. You can rationalize it. With a baby, they're in survival mechanisms. So they're just going to get into a position, whatever that position may be, to make them comfortable and to be able to get sustenance. So those are signs that parents can look at. You know, does my baby, can they lift their head up? Um, do they turn their head equally to one side? Do they like to nurse equally on one side? Can they hold onto a nipple for a long enough period of time? I mean, and I'm sure, you know, you've talked to people about, you know, tongue tie, lip tie, and buccal ties. 
That's another thing as chiropractors we look for. The, the medical profession does tend to look for it now because it's become so prevalent. But and it, they shouldn't look for all these things. Just like I don't like I don't do a, a PKU test on your baby. That's mm-hmm. not within my ballpark. You know, I don't do that kind of stuff. I may measure baby's head. Um, I may check. I'll check their spine for motion. I'll check what we said these cranial bones to make sure that they're normal. And I'll check their vital responses. And I'll check their primal reflexes. And as they get older, we'll check for their milestones because those are all part of the nervous system, which is what we're actually dealing with. And that's the thing that people don't understand about chiropractors. Yeah, we may use the bones as a way to get to the nervous system, but what we're really focused on is the actual function of the nervous system and to make that optimum. So again, if you can reframe that, that it's not like, well, yeah, your baby doesn't have a back problem. Well, what if your baby's constipated because part of the nerves in the lower back that, that in, innervate the intestines aren't working right and the, the intestines aren't contracting right? Maybe that's why your baby's gone. I just had a little boy brought in actually was referred by a medical doctor because he's had chronic constipation for over a year now. And when he, he's not complaining about his low back, but when we evaluated him, he had some problems down there and they had tried diet and they had tried you know, metamucil and laxatives and all that, and none of it works. And so we'll see, but it's not uncommon to find some imbalance in the spine that's affecting the nerves, that affects how the organs work. And then when we change that, it changes the way the body can adapt and function. Mm-hmm. Why do you think sometimes the symptoms for whatever issue is going on doesn't show up until later, like that three month? I do get a lot of parents who, when I'm trying to explain, like, this is why your baby is struggling with this, right. they, they kind of don't believe me in a way because they're like, right. this is a new thing. This hasn't yeah. been happening since birth. So let's take nursing because that's a really good one because that happens all a, a lot of times. The baby will start out nursing really well. And then what happens is somewhere around three or four months, they stop being able to nurse as well. Um, so several things can be happening there. The number one thing that usually happens is if you check inside a baby's palate, so I'll just use this, the big guy for a minute. You, know, you look inside of a baby's mouth, the palate is actually divided by four separate bones. So it has motion. There are also, what you talk about is gag reflexes or sensitivity in the palate. Very often, the back part of the palate is slightly more sensitive than the front part of the palate because of the way it moves and because of innovation. But what happens with babies is if that, as they get older, that sensitivity should decrease because what's going to happen is as a baby starts to nurse and as they get stronger, which is around three to four months, they start to suck the nipple further back into the mouth. And if that palate is abnormal or still hypersensitive, when they suck the nipple back stronger, because now they're three months old and they're getting good at it, they actually get a slight gag reflex or they'll pull their head off or they'll find it uncomfortable and they'll stop, they'll stop nursing or they won't nurse as well. So it's again, it's a process. It was an underlying issue that was there. It didn't manifest itself because the baby wasn't basically strong enough to suck back there and that'll cause a problem. Mm-hmm. Also, we are what you call fault tolerant individuals. So we compensate. So just like adults, right? If you hurt your arm, you know, the first thing you're going to do is see if it goes away, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to, and if it doesn't go away, you're going to keep using it, especially if you're a mom, you're going to keep pushing until you can't do it again, right? Until, until it breaks down. Well, babies as survival mechanisms have an internal survival mechanism. They're going to do the same thing. So, you know, when you hit every three in the first year or so of life, about every three months, there's huge neurological changes. So if there's a glitch somewhere, Sometimes it doesn't show up till the next level of neurological change occurs. Mm-hmm. So you have a baby, let's say, who has difficulty lifting their head and they still can't lift their head all the way by three months. Well, by three to four months when they should be turning over, they're not going to be able to turn over. And then if they can't turn over, that's going to affect their emotional and social interaction. And then you're going to have a different child than you have when it was born. You're going to have a child that's irritable, that's frustrated, that's very tense because they can't do the things that's already pre-programmed into their system. Mm-hmm. So that's often why it happens. Also, different levels of the nervous system are called on to work more as we get older and older and older. So, for example, let's talk about the front of the head, what we call the prefrontal cortex. That's kind of your decision-making center, but that doesn't cue in till later on. You know, it's not, you're not really using it till two, three years of age, and you're all reflexive. Well, if there's a glitch and it's not getting the proper input, when it's supposed to cue in, it doesn't cue in. So, for example, retain reflexes. That's part of that whole idea. By the age of two, all those primal reflexes should be gone mm-hmm. because now you should be able to cognitively understand that you don't need all these primal reflexes that, you know, when they, when you hear a sound out there, oh, mommy dropped a pot, you know, you don't have to get startled all the time. So if that area doesn't kick in. Then what's going to happen is when the baby look pretty normal up to a certain point, when they get to the point where they have to call in more of their nervous system, more of their resources, 
that's where the system breaks down. That's when we mm-hmm. get a disease process or a diagnosis. But it was the compensation patterns underneath that eventually got to the point where, oh, now I can't compensate anymore. Now I have a symptom. Right, right. Or in cases like in other cases, it's the disappearing of those or the integration of those reflexes. Like a lot of times we'll have babies who all of a sudden at three, four months, they just start rejecting the bottle. Yeah, and they, exactly. they always have like super high funky palates um, that right. are super sensitive. And the parents are always like, well, the baby always took a bottle up to this point, but that's about when the time they lose their sucking reflex. Right. So they right. can be, right. they can exactly. be like decide yeah, more. more on what they actually want to suck exactly. on and what's comfortable for them to suck on versus like having that reflex override their decision-making right. process. Right. Exactly. That's why the reflexes are pre-programmed to come and go at specific times so that you can adapt at different times to the the stress to the input that's being put upon you from the outside world that's the whole idea of those reflexes to disappear and change and milestones that's it so you're right exactly especially and you see kids like that you know you see kids are extremely extremely ticklish you know everybody thinks oh that's really funny they're really hypersensitive oh it's really funny but the problem with being hypersensitive like that is that's showing you that there's a nervous system that's hypersensitive and in the midbrain where all that stuff happens, the pain centers and the pleasure centers are right next to each other. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is if you start to get kids that are really hypersensitive, they get older, they may actually become more sensitive to pain. And they may be, you know, those are kind of setting up things for chronic pain syndrome or things like that. So the nervous system is moderated. It has, you know, two sides. It has a sympathetic and parasympathetic. And one side is kind of, you know, what we call the fight or flight, and the other side is the rest and digest. And the idea is that these two are supposed to work together. And if there's an imbalance, then exactly what you said will happen. If that sympathetic fight or flight system doesn't shut down when it's supposed to, and the parasympathetic kicks in, then you have basically a hypersensitive kid that everything's going to start to bother them. Everything becomes more sensitive. They get sensitive to texture. They will only wear certain clothes, right, because it's uncomfortable on their skin. And you're going to go, well, when my baby was, you know, two months old, I could put anything on him. Now my baby's 18, my kid's 18 months old and won't wear this shirt because it's scratchy. Mm-hmm. It's because their system has become sensitized and nothing has changed that sensitivity. And it's showing up when they can, just like you said, start to use their cognitive decision-making process. Hey, I don't like that. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier about tongue ties. We know that body work can be super helpful for babies with oral restrictions. How does doing body work benefit a baby with ties and how does it benefit a baby who's going in for a release? So again, we're setting up a paradigm for no. So one of the things that's important about the tongue being able to move is that when the baby sucks, they have to put their tongue up against the palate and it makes, it actually helps the palate grow that pressure. So every time you breathe in and out, your body expands and contracts. If you think of the tongue and you think of what we call fascia, which are attachment points to the muscles and the bones. So the tongue and that whole palate is a a fascial plane. If it's not moving right, one of the things you'll see with babies, if they're tongue tied, especially if they have an anterior tongue tie and they can't get their tongue out, is that it doesn't allow the jawbone to move out correctly. Those are kids on trouble nursing because they can't get their jaw out correctly. And if you look at little babies like that, you see a very deep crease sometimes under the jaw because the jaw is pulled backwards, what you might call a, a weak chin is what we used to call it. So the ability of the tongue to move also affects the way the jaw moves. It also affects the way the palate is formed. And so babies, even something like colic, if a baby can't get their tongue up against the mother's, up the palate, again, the mother's nipple, and make a flat, secure um, latch, then what happens is they're going to be sucking air at the same time that they're nursing. And when they suck air, it fills their stomach, it creates pressure in their stomach and gas, and that's when they that's one of the causes of colic, is that they can't get that up there. So in my world, um, we look at three levels of tongue tie. We look at an anterior, which is the very tip. We look at a middle, and we look at a posterior. What we do whenever a child has a tongue tie is we judge the function of their tongue as well. Because that little piece of skin that attaches to the tongue is stretchable and it's pliable. So what you have to do is you have to check the ability of the jaw to move forward and back, to move left and right. You have to check the ability of their tongue to be able to seal in all places on the palate. Um, and you have to then be able to check the size and height of the palate. You know, is it too narrow? Is one side drop? If those parameters are in there and they're not changing, um, then you may actually have to have revision. But what we do as chiropractors or body workers do is we try and set up those normal parameters. We try and facilitate those normal growth patterns, even with the tongue being tongue-tied at that point in time. So prior to the tongue-tie, we're going to set up normal parameters. So when the tongue-tie is done, if there's revision, they have a better foundation for which to move. It makes it easier, much less of a chance. Matter of fact, we've never had a kid 
who's re, who's reattached. You know, and I've been practicing for 40 years. Mm-hmm. So because of the, the body work that we do, we make sure that that is processed. Also, in some cases, a tongue target vision may not be necessary. And the body work will actually make all the functional changes. And the child will then be able to basically use their tongue in a proper manner, even though it looks like there's a slight tongue tie there. Mm-hmm. You know, it depends again where it is. If it's an anterior tongue tie, honestly, if it's at the very tip and the child can't get their tongue out, but it becomes heart shaped when they pick it out or it only curls down, I always have those. I always suggest those be revised because those are not going to change. Mm-hmm. But when you get back further back, then very often you can reduce the need for those particular procedures. And the body work again does two things. It helps set up a normal parameter so if the revision has to occur, then the adaption is much easier and there's mm-hmm. much less chance of it re- reattaching again. And if you're on the borderline where it may not be necessary, then the body work can actually create normal functional capability and then the tongue tie will no longer need to be revised because the child can do everything normally and the functionality and the patterns will change normally. Mm-hmm. Yep, and that's one of the things that I've noticed with working with families here, and I know that you're local to me is a lot of times they'll come see me after the tie was released right. because nothing is getting better. And, right, exactly. and that's because the asymmetry and the tightness and the tension was never addressed. So of right. course the tie movement's not going to change. It's also about repatterning. You have to understand that everything that you do is mitigated through your nervous system. So if you set up a pathway, you know, we talk about neuroplasticity, which is the ability of the body to change. Well, neuroplasticity could be negative too. In other words, you can create up a negative neurological pattern. And if the child has done that with a tongue tie, let's say, and even when they get it cut, they're still going to be using the tongue in the same way. Mm-hmm. So what we do is help facilitate a more positive pattern. Again, that's, that happens with people with an injury. You know, if you have a leg injury, an arm injury, a back injury, whatever it is, and you've been dealing with it for months and months and you go to a chiropractor, you've already made compensatory changes. When we make our corrections or adjustments, not only remove the joint pain or stabilize the spine, but we also retrain the spine, the muscles, the nervous system to react back normally again. So number one, the process doesn't occur again. And number two, you're no longer compensating with infants. You have to do the same thing. You're thinking if a child's two months old and for the first month of their life, they had a tongue tie and they were compensating for it. That's half their life that they made compensation. So you mm-hmm. have to restore normal patterns right. also. So that's part of the issue. That's why they don't get, that's why, you know, people who do your type of work, you help retrain them. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, that part of the job is, yeah, I got the tongue tie, I got the lip tie, I got the vocal tie, I got them all cut and my child still can't nurse. Right. Well, your child doesn't know that. Right, right. Your child didn't know that things really that much change, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, when kids, I've seen kids, older kids, you know, when they get a tongue tie revision, um, they start to play with their tongue a lot more. But those are kids who are like seven, eight months old, or even like I've had kids four or five years old who haven't had it done. But as they get older, they get more aware of it. And you'll see this little baby I just had, um, we actually ended up having to have a revision. And she was, I think she's about six months old. And when she comes in now, it's been about a week, 10 days since the tongue high, um, the revision. And she just plays with the tongue now. She's like sticking it out and pulling mm-hmm. it out. And she's able to nurse and feed better. It is working, but you can see her. She's playing with the thumb. She's becoming aware of it. She comes in, she sticks it out. She rolls it. And it's very, mm-hmm. it's very cute. That's also very useful. Right. And that's usually something I explain to parents when we're talking about whether to go for a release or not, is that the release will give them the ability to move their tongue, but we would have to teach them how. Exactly. Like if yeah. you train for a marathon with your shoes tied together by their shoelaces for nine months, and then someone came and untied so, yeah, them, right. you could exactly. technically run better, but you'd probably fall flat on your face. Right, you would, and you yeah. wouldn't know what you and you wouldn't know what to do with your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's true. That's definitely part of the process. It's retraining, it's preparation, and it's setting up a parameter where that they no longer have to compensate for the issue that they may have been compensating before. Before, like in some cases, like if you have a posterior tongue tie, in most cases, you can adapt to that very well. But like you said, sometimes they'll get a cut and they'll come in and there's no change. And you go in and you palpate the palate. You see that the palate's very distorted, but still very high and narrow. And because it's so narrow and high that when they nurse, they still can't make a seal. They mm-hmm. still can't get the tongue all the way up against it. So something has to be done to help open up that palate so that they can, again, seal, even if their tongue is working better. Okay. And is that that's something that you do as a chiropractor? That's what we do. Well, again, when you look at these kind of cranial bones, mm-hmm. all right, and even the spine babies, they have a high amount of mobility. And so what we do is what we call making adjustments, but the adjustments are much different in pediatrics than they are with adults. And it's a specialty that we use. And what we're really doing and when we're making a correction is we're facilitating the body 
to go into the direction Harry wants to do. But what we're doing in infants is more often than not is changing what we call the tension in the dura. And the dura is the attachment that protects the spinal cord, attaches to the bones, and it literally attaches inside the cranium over the brain and comes out through the suture of the skull and part, forms part of the, 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 the bony surface of the head and attaches all the way down to the tailbone. Mm-hmm. So if you think of a cord that's child to child's tailbone and then child to the tie to the child's head, and that cord determines how much tension is in the cranium or in the spine, what we try to do is find those points in that cord that are too tight and release them so that we can get a balanced tension in that. The dura, it affects the nerves, it affects the bones, it affects the fascia, it affects the muscle because the whole system is interrelated. Mm-hmm. Of course, people are not calling me because things are going well. They call me because they're having trouble. But of I course. can't remember the last time that I did an oral assessment on a baby that did not have a high or asymmetrical palate. Okay. How long do you, and I don't know if you can answer this, but how long does it take to correct the palate on average when you're working with a baby? Well, it's, it's the, the simple answer is the sooner the easier. Mm-hmm. So all these little soft spots that I just pointed in her head, usually the biggest one, which is the top of the head, at the longest period of time that it stays open is 24 months. Mm-hmm. Usually the average is 7 to 19 months. Then these little ones on the side, the one back here is 18 months, and the one over here is 15 months. So the further, and then the one back here, this is the one that closes the fastest, is 2 to 4 months. So the point I'm making around that is, the closer we are to the time when these are going to close and form the sutural system, the longer it takes to make the change. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, an average, I will tell a parent who comes in, let's say in the first three months, that it'll take about three to five months to make this process happen. Okay. Then it may go to six to eight months. And that's usually what time frame we usually look at. And that six to eight month period of time, that doesn't mean we see you every day. Six to eight months, I may see you. Um, you know, once every week or once every two weeks. It depends on on what we find underneath that. But again, just two things are happening. It's not like you take a bone and you move it. Mm-hmm. What we're doing is changing the tension on the bone so it allow it to grow faster. Mm-hmm. So again, in the first year of life, the brain's growing 101% of the time, another 15% in the second year. So the growth of the brain is why these sutures are open to allow mm-hmm. the head to expand. So that window of opportunity starts to get smaller and smaller after age two. Mm-hmm. So again, average three to four months, sometimes six to eight months. And again, they're not daily visits. They may be weekly or maybe, you know, every other week. It all depends on how well the child responds to what we do and how much distortion we find. Mm-hmm. I also think it depends on what's going on at home too. Well, like if well, the babies are putting containers all the time or are they being held yeah. more, are they getting the right. right amount of tummy time, all that stuff. Yeah. Well, that's extremely important. You know, that was a really good point. Parents have a lot to do. It's very, I, the last two years, in my opinion, has been extremely stressful on parents. I've seen more stressed parents and babies than I've ever seen before in my 38 years before this of life. And they're just, so that's the point. And right. So the children need to have good input. Is If the child's in a car seat all the time, it goes from the child, you know, car seat to a stroller to a carrier to lying on their back at night. Yeah, that's going to cause stress. That's going to be a high propensity for things like flathead syndrome. Tummy time is extremely important because not only does it strengthen the neck muscles, but it allows the child to move around, to turn their head, to actually start to see the world and take in more information. So that's an important time. Um, yeah, and all those milestones are extremely, extremely important. Also, you know, the other thing is, and I know we had a baby food shortage recently, um, but the, the bottom line is what you're feeding your baby makes a huge difference to how they're able to eat. You know, if, you, if you're looking at a formula and you turn it around and look at the back of the formula and it looks like a, a chemical equation and there really doesn't seem to be any food in it, there probably isn't. And that can be causing an issue as well. So, you know, we have to find things that is satisfying the baby to eat that's fulfilling that doesn't cause them to have to, you know, compensate to get nourishment in. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought up the last two years because I have felt that I've noticed the same thing. These pandemic babies are so tense and their parents, of course, are like, oh my gosh, my three-day-old baby's already rolling over. They're an overachiever. And having to explain to parents, well, that's not actually a good thing to have your three-day-old baby rolling over already. That's not what we would consider normal. Well, you know, it's interesting. So right at the base of the brainstem, there's an area, it's called the brainstem, but there's also an area called the cerebellum. And that's like a processing center for everything. And the first year of life, that grows 240%. 
And the reason for that is because that's where all the information gets processed. Throughout generations and generations and generations, you know, it's like there are pre-programmed, what we call pre-programmed proprioceptive feedback loops. It's a big name for it, but basically is that your reflexes, your developmental milestones, all that are pre-programmed into the system. And there's some variance, but you're right. A baby rolling over and flipping over at a week old is not a genius. It's a problem. You know, a baby who goes from sitting to standing and misses crawling. Oh, my baby's a genius. Never had a crawl. No, that's a problem. These are pre-programmed and they're designed to help the nervous system develop specifically the way human nervous system develop. It's like if you're an animal in the wild, right? When animals in the wild are born, they don't have to wait 12 months to walk because if they had to wait 12 months to walk, they would be eaten by predators. So they're pre-programmed to be able to get up and walk within a couple of hours at the most, right? If that breaks down, then they die. And when obviously kids are much more protected, we don't, it's not going to be that drastic, but you're right. That means that something in their nervous system that was supposed to be programmed correctly is not normal. And again, and it's a great thing that we talk about it in the book that my wife and I wrote, It's All in the Head, is we talk about the difference between what's common and what's normal. Just because it's happening all the time, and especially these last two years with the pandemic, we're seeing a lot more symptoms that are becoming common. They're definitely not normal. And we really have mm-hmm. to be careful about normalizing things because they're happening a lot. Right, right. So if you are a parent and you don't have any training, right. what are signs that you can look for that your baby might need some help and some body work? All right. Well, again, the stuff that you see all the time, difficulty nursing, um, mm-hmm. inability to pick their head up within the first month, not wanting to do tummy time, always seeming very, very tense and tight, having extremely erratic sleep patterns, um, not able to self-soothe themselves at all, um, other digestive issues, right? Um, you know, chronic constipation type of thing, diarrhea, cramping, screaming, pulling their legs up too tight, you know, or and that's the tighter end. The other end is being too flaccid. In other words, not being able to lift their arms. When you put your fingers near their hands, if they can't grasp you, there's no grasp reflex and no ability to do that. If you're watching your baby and it looks like their eyes don't follow you when you walk around the room or move, if their eyes don't track, that's a problem. So those are some of the other things that we see. If they always like to favor one side, like they don't want to turn their head to another side, or if they sit in a car seat and every time they're in a car seat, like they sit like this all the time, they mm-hmm. never pick their head up. Those are other type of things that you look at. As they get older, again, the milestones, if they're not able to sit up by somewhere around six months or not even even try, that's a problem. If they don't try and creep and crawl somewhere between seven and nine months, that's again, that's a problem that you want to be looking at. Uh, also a baby, we have some kids that come in and parents say, oh, he's great. You know, he can turn from his stomach to his back, but he can't turn from his back to his stomach. That's not good. Or he always turns to the right side, never turns to the left side. Okay. So those are all little glitches that are becoming more common as babies get stressed, but those are not normal. And those are usually signs that there's some kind of compensatory process occurring and that you should get the child checked. Mm-hmm. I also think like the parents who say, oh, he hates the car seat. He screams the whole right, time. Screams in the car seat. Exactly. That, that, yes, that's a one. big red yeah. flag for me or sleeping with the mouth open all the time. Right. Mouth breathers. Also, yeah. Those, yeah. Are really, yeah. those are really good ones. Exactly. Um, yeah. And then if you start to see, you know, a lot of times you'll see one eye socket looks smaller than the other. Or if you'll notice if your baby's jaw always deviates to one side, um, again, and that's the same thing if you like to nurse more on one side than the other. So you start to see distortions in, you know, baby's face. I mean, again, part of the reason that we wrote the book, and I finally wrote the book, It's All in the Head, is because she was, we went shopping, we were at a seminar, and we didn't bring our baby doll with us, you know, that we use for, for um, demonstration, and we went to a Toys R Us or one of those type of stores. And all the baby dolls, she goes, look at all these baby dolls. They look so weird. Their faces are all distorted. And I'm like, well, that's normal. It's kind of like when I was growing up, you know, Barbie dolls, like, wow, look at all these bodies. They're perfect. It's, that's not normal. All right. Mm-hmm. And so she started noticing all these babies' faces and heads and stuff looked weird when they were processing. And so you know, when you start to look around, you can see these kind of distortion patterns. You know, it's no different when you walk down the street and you see some, some person limping and go, wow, that, that person must be hurt. Look how they're limping. You know, you already think about that. Well, your baby kind of does the same thing. What if they, you know, they can't use their right arm as well? I mean, eventually you pick right hand and left hand. But when you're a baby, you should be able to grasp with both hands. You know, mm-hmm. you should be able to look look both ways. And those are the kind of things that we look for. So, yeah. And and you're right. Those sleeping patterns are very common that you see. And that thing from going from one 
like a car seat to a stroller to a carrier, and one of those things the child really hates, that's a problem usually. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a possibility that that particular ergonomics of that carrier might be off for them, but more often than not, it's because there's some kind of problem, and that's a, that's a, definitely a red flag. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my colleagues and I kind of joke all the time, like once you know what to look for, like the more we learn about what to look for and these structural issues, the more you can't unsee it when you're exactly. just like in a room with a bunch of kids and you're just noticing all these issues that are happening and nobody else seems to notice. I, I had a student once um, call me. Um, I had known the student for a very long time. And she said to me, she goes, Jose, I hate you. I said, well, that's nice. And she goes, yeah. She goes, she goes, she goes, cause she, she, had, she ended up going to chiropractor. She was a student in chiropractor. She took my class, but I had known her before that. And she'd gone to chiropractor. And she goes, I used to think babies were so cute. Now every time I see them, all I see is what's wrong with them. <laughs> yeah. I had the issue when I look at pictures, you know, my kids are a lot older now. They're in their right. teens. Right. But when I look back at pictures of them right. as babies, I'm like, Holy crap. Like, how did I not see? Like, my son's jaw was like, he almost looks like a little stroke victim, kind of. Well, that's, you know, when we teach pediatrics, we have a certification program. And once we get into the cranial part and what we call visual analysis, we have a whole section on how to analyze the face and and what's going on. And people start looking at other people in the classrooms, like, oh my God, I have this. And they'll come up to me in class and Dr. Rosen. I'm like, look, it's too late for you. You're 40 years old. Just mm-hmm. go sit down and relax. You know, that's mm-hmm. where your body is compensating. We're not going to change that right now. And that's not what this visual analysis is about. It's about catching it before the whole system, co- you know, solidifies and codifies. And that's the whole idea. The earlier you catch it, the much more change we can make. Just like with any provider, mm-hmm. including lactation consultants, and they're not always created equal. Right. So even though there are body workers in my area that say that they work with infants, I don't refer to them because for some reason, I feel like they just don't get the same results as other body workers. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of explain why that mm-hmm. is and how, how you would find like a body right. worker that knows what they're doing? So the simple fact is it's true in every profession across the board. You can have a good mm-hmm. dentist, you can have a good lawyer, you can have a good medical doctor, carpenter. It's no, I mean, there's no healthcare workers, body workers are no different. So um, you know, one of the things, the reason we create a certification program is that we monitor the people who take our courses. They have to set a certain sets of parameters and goals. And if they reach those parameters and goals, then we go on our website and at least we know that they have the skill set and we check it and do that. Um, in the general population, it's hard now because honestly, marketing is the, the key that most people build their practice on. And the better the marketer they are, the better they get people in. So it's really hard to wade through their marketing to find out what they do. Um, with chiropractors, like I said, we have referrals. You can go on our website, which is drmartinrosen.com, and we have our certification there. There's another group of people called the International Chiropractic Pediatric Association. Um, so you can look at that. There's also another group called the uh, International Chiropractic Association, which is a pediatric branch. So if you go to some of the different organizations, they will have pediatric branches of people taking their certification classes. So that's one way to do it. If you're calling around, you can simply say, hi, do you take care of kids? And, oh, yeah, we take care of kids. Just ask a simple question. What percentage of your practice is children? Mm-hmm. You know, they say, well, 5%. I'm like, well, then you don't really take care of kids. You get an occasional kid in once in a while. Right, um, right. You know, the best way, obviously, is through referrals. You know, and every practitioner, and I'm sure it's in your profession, so, and it's every person, every practitioner has a certain different way of doing what they do, what they do. So we may all have the same goal and there are different techniques in chiropractic. There's probably 120 different techniques, ways to make adjustments. Just like if you go to a medical doctor, there's, you know, 50 different types of antibiotics that you can get for that. So, mm-hmm. or, and then for dentists, it's a bunch of different procedures, everything starting from root canal to implants. You know, it's about trying to find the practitioner that number one matches your kind of energy. Number two, is seems to be competent and in their initial intake, you should be able to tell right then if they know how to take care of kids. There should be an initial intake where they're making a connection to you and they're making a connection to a kid and they're asking the right questions. You know, this kind of questions you just said, well, does your kid feel comfortable in a car seat? Um, do you ever notice that Johnny turned his head to both sides? You know, when he gets up at night, does he get up the same time every night? Um, have you noticed any other glitches in him? Anything else that seems, especially with other kids, does he seem different than your other kids? So there should be questions that should cue you in that they know what they're talking about at a certain point. And, and as I always say, and I always want people to be really careful. If one practitioner 
doesn't help you. It doesn't mean that that profession has failed. It may mean that you're not, that that practitioner's particular modality doesn't work as well. So I have people refer to me a lot because we specialize in pediatrics. Friends of mine who are chiropractors who do some pediatrics, not a lot. If they have a kid that is challenging, very often they'll refer them to me. And what I will also do is I refer to people. If I'm working with a kid and I feel like, you know, it's just not making the changes, that's when I'll start to look at for ancillary, ancillary input, um, maybe a speech therapist, maybe an OT, maybe a PT, mm-hmm. um, maybe a lactation consultant, you know, if it's a nursing issue. So you have to have a parameter. When patients come in with me and they have a kid, let's say who has symptoms, I'll say, look, let's take six weeks. And we're going to take this first six weeks and we're going to try and change that pattern. Within the first three to six weeks, we should know if what I'm doing is going to help or if we need assistance. Like, matter of fact, when I get off this podcast, I have a call and talking with a speech therapist with a child that we're working with. We have a patient that we're working with together. And I've been working with the kid for about two months now. And we're going to connect and see how we can help facilitate, you know, the changes that we want in this kid. You also want someone to be open to that, like someone who's not threatened by your questions. I mean, no practitioner wants to hear 50 different questions and because parents are lying in the butt. They should be open to the questions that are pertinent and to question you like, you know, I don't think Johnny's doing so well. And if that becomes offensive to them, I would leave the office. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you know, it's like, okay, so let, because if someone says to me, you know, it's been three weeks, doc, and I don't see any changes. I'll say, okay, well, let's reevaluate. And I may stop my actual normal visit protocol at that night and change it and maybe reevaluate and see if what I see or the goals that I'm looking for have changed. If they have, then I'll say to the parent, look, what I'm trying to do is X, Y, and Z, and this seems to be changing. Let's give it a little more time. Or I might go, mm-hmm. wow, you're right. I haven't really seen any changes. What else should we be doing? What's happening at home? You know, is there something else that we should be looking at? Um, is he getting the tummy time that we talked about or, you know, or is she eating well or not? You know, there's all these other parameters that you need to be able to look at. So um, mm-hmm. I think that's it. The biggest thing is being able to connect with them, making sure they ask the right questions, and then being open to a conversation, um, not just like this is the way it is, you know, kind of thing. And right. be willing to ask them, you know, doc, you know, they know or whoever, you, are, you know, I don't know if this is working. Do you know anybody else or should there anything else that we may be doing should be doing at this time to help facilitate the process. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I do have a family that I work with who the father is a chiropractor and he will adjust babies. He adjusts his own babies, but he makes it clear that it's not like his thing Right. and refers out as soon, you know, sometimes he'll see a baby because all the other body workers are booked far out or something, but as soon as there's an opening with the provider that's more familiar with babies, he makes sure to send them over there. You know, I do a lot of work with babies. I do a lot of work with pregnant moms. I just got a patient that came in last week. Very nice lady. She's been going to a chiropractor for years. She really likes the chiropractor she's seeing. But now that she's pregnant, she's having some issues and he's not able to deal with them. And she goes, yeah, no, I want, I'm right now I'm pregnant and I know that that's part of your expertise. So I want you to take care of me during my pregnancy. And there's a very good chance that she'll go back to another chiropractor after the pregnancy or stay. doesn't. But, you know, it's a very clean break. And that happens all the time. It's like, okay, great. I'm going to help you through this particular specialized period in your life because that's my expertise. And then, you know, if you choose to go back under your regular chiropractic care, that's great. You stay here, that's great. I mean, we can't take care of all the people and save the entire world all the time. Mm-hmm. And so over 40 years in practice, there were times and there was one period of my practice where I really thought I wanted to be a sports chiropractor. So I studied, I did a lot, I worked with trainers, I worked with health clubs, I myself did, um, used to do triathlons and was part of running clubs. And after a certain point, I went, this is not really what I want to do. Right. So if someone calls up and it's, you know, people call with I have a sports injury, I can deal with it because I do have that in my past, but I'll also tell them, you know, I'm not a sports chiropractor. I said, I will help you with your adjustments, with your protocols, but I'm not going to set up an exercise program with you anymore. You know, if you want all that kind of stuff, then we're going to have to find somebody to work with you that way. But I'll be happy to adjust you, and I know what to look for, and I know what to do to take care of that. But again, it's no longer my expertise. And since I don't Mm -hmm. do it, everything changes very fast. There's probably things out there that I'm not aware of anymore that deals with that because I don't want to keep up with it. It's just not my thing. Right. I always say the best provider is the one who knows what they don't know. Yeah. 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 It's funny you said that because my daughter is a chiropractor. And uh, she said to me, we were at a seminar, I don't know, a couple of months ago. And she goes, Dad, you keep saying, I don't know. She said, you never used to say, I don't know. 
I was like, yeah, I know, because I always thought I knew everything, and now I know I don't know everything. But she yeah. kind of looked at me like, yeah, I don't. There's a lot of things we don't know. So you're right. That's I like that. The investment buyer is one that says they don't know. I like that. I'll put that on a wall somewhere. <laughs> is there like a minimum age that a baby has to be before they can start body work? The second they come out of the uterus. Okay. So basically now. <laughs> I literally have gone to home births and actually mm-hmm. hospitals right after birth um, to check babies. So yeah, mm-hmm. so there's no, when parents ask me that all the time, and my answer to them is whenever, as soon as you feel up to bringing your child in, I'm ready to check your child. I've had people okay. stop back on the way from the hospital. Um, like I said, I've gone to home births. Ideally, actually, because of that, when we talked about it, that cranium, ideally, we'd really like to check the baby for the first time within the first seven to 10 days, because that's the time when that cranium, after it comes out of transition, should normalize. So if it hasn't in those seven and 10 days, we can usually pick, we not usually, we can pick that up. So mm-hmm. that's actually the premier time, those first seven and 10 days to be checked. But anytime, I mean, you know, we do it. So anytime is a good time. Again, a lot of, you know, there are a lot of factors depending on time management, how many other kids, how traumatic the birth was for the mom, you know? Right. Right. How's right. she? I mean, how she's feeling. Right. It's a C-section. I mean, I've had cases where people who have been either patients of mine or more or aware of the traumas of C-section have actually brought the, had the husband bring the baby in, you know, after the second week because the wife wasn't able to yet. She didn't feel up for it. And the, the mm-hmm. dad would bring the baby in so I could check the baby. And then when the mom got better or, or felt up for it, she would come in with the baby. But yeah, so I've had that happen numerous times over the years. And what about baby, after a baby goes through a release for like a tongue ties? Do you have like usually, a certain time a, that you like to see them? I, within like usually 48 hours. I don't usually like to see them the next day because I don't want to start sticking my finger in their mouth and checking mm-hmm. it. Usually, especially if it's been somewhat traumatic, but usually within 48 hours, 72 at the most. Um, I'd like okay. to see it, be, yeah, because we want to make sure that number one, I double check to make sure that it's healing well, um, and I also want to make sure that I've had a couple of instances where they cut a little too deep, and we had to you know tell the mom that you know this is going to take a little longer. I have to you know calm it down. Yeah, the child's going to have a little more difficult time, and and so it helps me prepare them for what it's going to look like over the next couple of weeks. Because a lot of parents just like you think, oh, I'm going to do the cut, they're going to come back to the nurse, and everything's mm-hmm. going to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Not always the case. Sometimes yes, but not always the case. So yeah, 48 hours, 72 hours, just enough so the baby's calming up down. Because again, in their world, 48 hours is a long time. So they'll mm-hmm. won't have that memory so blatantly in their mind. So as soon as I, I go to check their mouth, then I'm going to basically pull back and be scared right away. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your book. My book. Our book. Here it is. I happen to bring it here. Here it is. <laughs> So I wrote, it's all on the head, right? Of course, it's backwards because of it. But anyhow, um, so my wife and I wrote it. I've written a number of books, of technical books. I, I've been teaching for 39 of the 40 years I've been practicing. So I've written a lot of technical manuals. This is the first book that we wrote for lay people as well. So there's a lot of information for healthcare practitioners, obviously. But the book gives you a kind of a baseline of the anatomy and physiology of your child's development. It talks about the milestones. It talks about the primal reflexes. It basically talks about everything we talked about here. It talks about tongue-tied flagellocephaly, signs to look for when there's an issue, and places that you can go to get help. So that's kind of what it's everything we did in this podcast kind of in a nutshell. And okay. a lot of people have been buying it. A lot of chiropractors buy it to give to their patients. Instead of trying to explain what we do, the book explains why we do what we do. It talks about mm-hmm. what I just talked about earlier, the dermal system. It talks about cerebral spinal fluid, which is basically the lifeblood of the central nervous system. So it gives you some basic anatomy, physiology, what to look for, what signs there are, if there are things are wrong, and where to go for help. Mm-hmm. And I like that it's written for the layperson, for the parent. It is written for the yes. Because yeah. not too many, well, there's not too many books about that out right. in general, but especially well, not for parents. This was our COVID contribution because um, mm-hmm. part of the COVID thing, we used to travel a lot, um, usually about twice a month to teach all over the, literally all over the world, but kind of shut down. We couldn't travel. So we were home alone and we felt like drinking wasn't the answer. So we, did. so we tried writing a book together, which actually is our first book that we wrote together. Cause my wife's a doctor too. She's a chiropractor as well. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so it is, it's, it's targeted, targeted for two venues. It's targeted for healthcare practitioners to be able to give to their patients for them to understand why they do what we do and what we're doing. And then it's also targeted to the lay person to get a sense of what's, what's important, why it's important and how to get help. 
And where can people find you if they want to connect with you or buy your book? Okay, so there's a lot of places. Number one, to find the book, if you go to itsallintheheadbook.com, that you'll get right to the book. If you want to find me for, and you're a lay person and you're looking for care, then you'd want to go to my office website, which is Wellesley, W-E-L-L-E-S-L-E-Y, Cairo.com. That's my office website. If you're a professional and want to find out more about our seminars and our books and our courses, because we do online and hands-on courses, there's two places. One of them is Dr. Dr. Martin Rosen. Dot com and the other is peakpotentialprogram.com and that they'll give you all our courses and all our information on and that's for the professionals and to contact us by email the best email probably is um dr dr martin rosen at gmail.com so anyone and of those are men, you on social media at all yeah we're all over facebook instagram twitter we have yeah so there's we have a bunch of Facebook pages, professional Facebook pages, as well as lay professional pages. I am on Instagram. Um, I have a TikTok account, but I don't dance really that well, so I don't do a lot of TikTok. <laughs> I'm <laughs> definitely going to find you on TikTok. <laughs> yeah, if I, no, I don't. Yeah. You'll probably find one of my daughters on TikTok. They're much better dancers than I am. Yeah. Well, this was great. I think it's so important to get this information out, and I will put all those links in the show notes. That's great. I appreciate that. It was great. It was real. I really enjoyed this. It was awesome. And um, you really seem to know your stuff. It's great to talk to people, you know, who are in the same ball game as we are and doing it for the same reasons to really help people get through these times. Because you're right. These babies, the last two years, if we don't help them now, we're going to have a plethora of kids with neurodevelopmental issues in the next generation. And they do not, I mean, right. I probably won't be around to see it, but you will. And we don't want that. Right. And it takes a collaborative approach. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Martin. Thank you you for joining us this week on the Baby Pro Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, ShellyTaffIBCLC.com, where you can check out our online parenting community, The Baby Bistro. You can also follow us on social media at ShellyTaffIBCLC on Instagram. If you love the show, please leave a rating on iTunes that we can continue to bring you amazing episodes. Thanks for listening and see you in two weeks.